started. It's good to see you all here again. We are in Eastertide, fifth week of Eastertide, and I'll begin with the confession, I am not a big wine drinker. Um, deep, I know. If we were in a Southern Baptist church, we could just say amen and go home right after that little confession, right? I was raised among the Southern Baptists who, they, I say they have kind of a love-hate relationship to wine. They love to judge people who, for, who are drinking. They hated getting caught having a glass of wine with dinner every once in a while. That was just how we rolled as Southern Baptists. Um, and then I became a pastor and realize if you're going to be a pastor, you have to learn a little something about wine and winemaking because it's all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. And for much of Israel's history, they understood themselves as God's good vineyard, responsible to um, bear fruit for the world. It's one of the main metaphors that they use to kind of understand their own common life. They're a vineyard responsible to bear good fruit. And in our text for today, as we heard, Jesus is playing around with this image of wines and, and vineyards and grapes. Um, it comes from what's actually called the farewell discourse. It's this chunk of John um, during the Last Supper. It's quite long. It's 14 through 17, um, the chapters of John. And um, he's teaching them sort of how to be faithful in a post-resurrection world. And this image of vines and branches is the most powerful image in that section. And um, part of why the metaphor worked is that people in the ancient world had kind of a, a working knowledge of how vineyards functioned. It was just part of their, you know, everybody knew. And, and so the, the story of a vineyard was familiar to them. And it, of course, begins with soil, which has a massive impact on grapes. This is actually, um, there's, there's a, uh, a term for this, and I'm not like a wine guy, but um, it's, it's ter terroir. Terroir, does that sound? It's T-E-R-R-O-I-R, -R -R, like terroir. It's, it means the combination of soil and climate and sunlight and the stuff that goes together just from the dirt to make a certain kind of taste of, of, of grape, gives the, a distinct character and flavor. In Kansas, where we grow like wheat and corn and, and our vegetable gardens, we need rich, fertile soil with lots of nutrients. Um, this would be terrible for wine grapes. For one thing, the, the root system would become underdeveloped and they'd be really um, fragile as plants. But mostly, a grapevine growing in rich soil packed with nutrients and lots of water will produce a bunch of beautiful, big, fat grapes that taste like water. You ever bitten into a grape and there's like no taste to this? That's, it's usually because it's grown with too much water. It'll have no flavor at all. Grapevines actually need rocky soil. Um, this is a picture of a winery um, from the Holy Land. Look at the soil. Look at all the stones in there. This is um, from Shiloh. This is up where they would have been growing wine for much of David's life. And they do this because the root system has to struggle below the ground, struggle to find water and moisture. It needs, um, it, it needs soil that is rocky and not so rich in nutrients, so it, it takes longer to go grow out these tendrils and, and hunt the roots down and then send them up through longer vines underground. It needs a climate that is warm during the day, but then cold at night, so the, the plant kind of shuts down. And all of these things sort of function together to take a vine that naturally grows really fast. You ever have vines in your yard? They just grow in, insanely fast. And, but it takes these factors to slow that way down. 
Um, because if it will grow slowly, it will produce fruit that is packed with flavor. And grapevines are like, they're beautiful plants. These large, glossy leaves, large clusters of fruit that look like sort of like hidden jewels among this little treasure thing. They're, they're, they're still vines, though. They grow like weeds. And if left unintended, or untended, they grow like crazy, creeping on the ground. They have those little tendrils and claspers just searching for a fence or even another tree that they can climb and get up off the ground and reach toward the sunlight. So they grow as these kind of thin little vines in the wild. But in a vineyard, a grapevine is cultivated over many years to where it looks more almost like a tree than a vine. And rather than letting the vine just, just grow really long, they keep cutting it, pruning it back over many years until the stalk of the vine grows really thick. It's, it looks more like a tree, except it still usually can't support its own weight and it's propped up. And the focal point of all of this, of course, is the fruit. After years of tending and cultivating and cutting and pruning and, and all the knowledge and skill and patience that goes into a vineyard, the moment of truth is the grape itself, right? The fruit. And there are three options. There's good fruit, there's bad fruit, and there's no fruit. No fruit, of course, means the vine is, is just failing. Um, bad fruit can mean lots of things. It can mean um, usually some form of the grapes are not well-suited for their intended purpose. That's, that's bad fruit. So it can be they're too sweet or too bitter, they're too watery or too dry, too big or small, not enough flavor, too much flavor. It might be a variety of grape that just doesn't fit the soil or, or a variety of grape that doesn't meet the demand of the vine grower. There are tons of reasons it can be um, bad fruit. But often when this happens, the vineyard keeper will do something that seems on the surface a little crazy. They will just go through the vineyard and cut off the branches, just slice them off, like a couple feet above the ground. And so it looks something like this. You can see that whole section of the vineyard has been chopped off. These things are still alive. With a tree, that'd be the end, right? These guys know exactly what they're doing. So if the first thing they do after they chop it, cut it off, cut off the branches and burn them or whatever, they, they let it sit for a while. And so all the, the moisture and sap down in the vine begins to seep out the top. They call it weeping. It's like it's weeping. It, it, and this lowers the overall pressure, like the hydraulic pressure in that, that vine, which is usually pretty high. It just kind of seeps out the top and, and, and pools there. You can see it's all sappy and, and sticky on there. And um, the bark around the vine begins to sort of loosen up a little bit. And then the grafters come in. And these guys are amazing. We actually have some video of them. They, that's what they do 24-7 all, all around the, the world. They take these really sharp knives, and they have all these branches, and they, they cut little buds off. And they do it in such a way that they can catch it, and then they, they stick the thing in their mouth. Look, watch this. He, he, it's a really sharp knife. He cuts the bud, and it'll flip up, and he'll catch it. I mean, they do this all day long. It's cool. And then they, he just, like, plops it in his mouth. And then, he, then he's ready to go. And then what he's going to do is graft that onto the branch. And um, the way that they do this is they make, um, it's a T-cut or a, a notch cut into the cambium of the, the vine where the moisture is. And then they'll slide the bud um, into it and then work over it with some tape. So you can see that slid in there. Watch, he'll, he'll make a, a T-cut and then a notch. And then he'll take one of the little buds from his mouth he slides it up in there and then folds the stuff 
puts it up with his knife, and he folds the stuff around him. And then they'll come along. You'll see with this guy, he's making that little cut. They cut right underneath it to keep all that liquid from coming up through the vine and forcing the bud out. That way it'll take. These knives are so sharp. They slide it up in there. And then they'll wrap it with this tape that holds it in place and puts all the moisture, keeps all the moisture in there. And this is, this is how they do it, to make sure a graft will take onto a, a root system that's really strong that wasn't bearing good fruit. And over, over time, this will then scar over and repair the cut, and this will become just like a, a new branch on a really old successful vine. And, but instead of having to like grow a whole new field of vines from, from seeds, could take like five, six, seven, eight years to get new grapes from it. This takes one year. They, it'll just grow out and they'll wait till later and trim it. They'll let it grow all the way until really the, the fall. And then the leaves will turn brown and fall off and the vine will go dormant for the winter. And that's when they start to prune. And in these big vineyards, um, it'll go like four or five months they'll spend pruning this because there's no way to do it other than by hand. You have to prune it by hand. And they cut these long branches down to where there's only like maybe two or three buds on the branches. And the reason they do this is because they've cultivated these vines so that they have to struggle for moisture. They have to struggle for nutrients. And, and they're growing really, really slowly, which is not in their nature. And so each of these buds, it's going to produce a lot, like two at least big clusters of grapes. And that's really all that they want. If they leave too many on, the vine can't ripen all of those grapes, and they'll get bad fruit. And, and they know what they're doing. Like, they know if they, they come along and prune the vine really late in the season, it'll bud out later. And, and this will usually keep it from um, being injured by a freeze or something like that. It, the, if a vine is in like a, a really low-lying area, they'll, when it's time to prune, they'll let a couple of these branches go really, really long. So they, it, they're sucker branches. They just suck off some of the nutrients and the moisture, and then later they'll cut those off. And that keeps it kind of in this happy medium place. They, um, depending on if it's like the north or south or east or west, how much sunlight, how much wind and temperatures change on, on different hills in the, the geography of the land, they might have to grow different grapes in different areas. They might have to switch to olives or dates or some kind of fruit tree. It, the, these ancient vineyards, these are complex ecosystems um, performing this delicate dance between land and climate and weather and the type of grapes they've grafted into these things and vines and branches and then this vine, vine dresser who um, knows what they want, knows what they're aiming for, knows what they need to grow. And this was just part of everyday life. Most families had some kind of a vineyard or some kind of a something or other, like a grapes or, or some sort of fruit like that, olives growing on their property. It was just part of their normal everyday life. Like you guys would know maybe kind of, even if you haven't done it, how to milk a cow. They, would, they, they sort of know the general area, right? They, they know ex not exactly how to do it, but they would have knowledge of this. And so he, Jesus grabs this image that they know about to talk about how God is trying to produce fruit in their life once he's gone for specific purposes. He's, he's looking for deep roots that go below the surface of our lives. He's trying to graft us into a different source, one that's strong, that can last, right? 
below the surface of even our lives. He, he's going to use things like adversity to slow things down for us. This is, this is going to be difficult. He's going to prune us and tend us over long years, if that's what it takes, to shape us in peculiar ways to produce the fruits of the kingdom. Because God's not just after great big grapes that taste like water. God promises good fruit for those who remain in Christ, blending and aging and seasoning us like fine wine for the whole world to taste. And all of this stuff is just wound into this passage from the Gospel of John chapter 15, in which Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. And this is kind of a radical thing. Israel saw itself as the true vine. That was their self-identity. Jesus has gathered his own Israel, right? His own 12 tribes, a new Israel, and says, I am the true vine. I'm the one producing the good fruit. And he says, my father's like the vine keeper. And there's this curious detail. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, then he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Even Jesus here has some problematic branches. This is part of what it means to be human. There are aspects of his life that are unfruitful. Things that he maybe tried along the way that didn't really work out, and so they, they snipped those things off. We're not given the d- details. We're just told this is part of what it means to be a human who follows God. The Father will remove certain branches, even from Christ, the ones that bear no fruit. And the ones that do bear fruit, he'll prune to make sure it's the right kind of fruit, good fruit. And then he says, you have already been cleansed by the word I have spoken to you. Um, you are clean. He says, the Greek word there is katharos. It's where we get the word catharsis. It means um, you're physically, ritually, even like ethically and morally, you're clean, you're good. And he, he's saying this to, to let them know they're, they're guiltless, they're blameless. You're, you're cool before God. This is, by the way, before the crucifixion that he says this. By my word, that's what he says. You've accepted my word about who I am as Messiah. And just by accepting that teaching, you're good, right? The true, true vine, you're, you're part of it. That's, that's, that's part of being clean. In fact, it's the same word he uses with the Pharisees um, who need to clean the inside of the cup, not just the outside of the cup. It's, it's that kind of a deal. He's like, you're good inside and out. You've been already made clean by the word I've spoken to you. And then he says, so abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We've talked about this word abide. Um, it's meno, remain. Meno is the Greek word. Um, it's, it's over and over in John, tons of times in verses that, that you would recognize. It's, it's just the, this image of the grafters coming into these vines and grafting in these new branches taping them up and then going, remain, abide, stay here, and, and begin to grow. And this, it's that scarring over until they become joined really as one um, organism. And then, then he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is sometimes used as a threat of like hell. 
in damnation, which is really, it's not part of the, the image at all here. He's talking about a vineyard and how that works, right? Um, and by the way, remember just a few weeks ago, we read another, the preceding part of, of John's gospel. Mandy talked about it where Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Right? That's his objective here. That's what he's trying to do. He's not, it's not God judging us and throwing us away. It's just stating the reality of what happens if you don't stay connected to the vine. You distance from God. You don't abide in, in me. We kind of condemn ourselves to this fate. We wither away and we end up on the garbage heap of life. And I always know when somebody's really kind of positioning themselves to bail on their faith because they stop coming to church. They stop being connected to, to this body, right? And, and without that abiding, remaining, you can't thrive. You can't thrive as part of God's vineyard all on your own. You can't. It just, it just never happens. Um, you need the church. We need these rhythms of being together. And so he says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. That's another focus on those words that make us clean. Ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's fruit. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Love is the focus here. It's the center. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you. That's how connected we are. His joy just flows into us and, and that our joy may be complete. It's really kind of a simple metaphor, but when you understand, I mean, I'm not a wine drinker or a vine grower, but when you understand some of the details of this, it's, it's pretty cool. It's a rich imagery that it was part of their regular life. And the reality is that even though the imagery is kind of simple and very rich, most people, or maybe I'd say very few people, actually choose to live like this. It's exceedingly rare. Most of us don't live a life that's like slow, intentional, daily engagement with God. For the most part, we just kind of go with the flow of the culture. Just join in kind of the unconscious habits and rhythms and patterns and practices of American life, which is mostly about how to get things to go bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster, right? And Jesus means to just hijack all of this and plug it into a different way, to, to put it on a different path. He grasps us into his life, the true vine, so that we'll produce a kind of fruit, a specific kind of fruit that is for the life of the world, for the healing of the nations. And here's the twist, and I'm kind of maybe diverged from our typical thoughts on this passage because I was really taught when I was growing up that the trick in all of this is to try really, really hard to think about God all the time. And so we would like put bracelets on our wrists and I would tie um, rubber bands around my fingers. I was kind of a weird kid. I was really guilt-ridden and serious about this. I would tie rubber bands around my, my fingers so they would cut off the circulation, and this would remind me when I was like, ow, to think about God. I was like really twisted when I was young. But I mean, this is sort of how we're taught, that you have to think about God all the time, and if you don't, then you're racked with guilt. 
because you're not, you failed to remain or whatever. I think this actually misses the kind of energy of the metaphor. Um, on one hand, the, the vineyard is a very disciplined place. I mean, look at some of these pictures of old vines. You look at these things. That, this does not happen in the wild. A vine is, I mean, you've seen Tarzan, or maybe not, but that, you know what a vine is. It doesn't look like this. Like, this thing has been intentionally handled for decades to look like this. It, it, these are not wild. You don't get this configuration in the wild, just going along with nature. These vines have been tended and shaped, and it's been slow work. Um, and they fit now a specific purpose. They subsist through adversity, and they're learned, they've been sustained by deep roots, and now they can produce fruit just consistently. Just consistently. Day in, day out, year in, year out. Just as a matter of course. Because now it's just in their nature to, to do so. Like a branch doesn't sit there going, okay, grapes, baby, grapes, not strawberries, grapes, right? That's not, that's not how it thinks. It just does what it's been trained to do. And I think this is what Jesus is, is after. He's trying to connect us to his own life as the source of our life. And he's, a promise, he's promising that we'll abide, meno, remain in Christ as our source, which involves slowing things down, like in a vineyard, cutting a lot of things out that aren't helpful, and, and then faithing our way through adversity. This will make us strong. This will, will build for us spiritual roots. And then God, when stuff starts to grow, God will start pruning and cutting things back kind of seasonally. But over time, then, we'll just naturally bear the fruit of the kingdom, almost as a matter of course. And, and part of what he's saying is, there's no other way. There is no other way to bear the, the fruit of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's also connected. You know, he loved agricultural metaphors. It's connected to the you reap what you sow thing, right? If you sow dandelions, you don't get a rose bush, right? These, these two things, the ends and means are connected. The fruit of your life depends on the source of your life. The, the seed thing is fast. It's, it's immediate. The, the vine, the vineyard, the abide in me, it's slow. You, you measure this kind of growth in decades, right? And there's no tricking this. You can't glue the fruit from some other tree onto your tree and say, look what I grew, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work this way. There's no way to, to game this system. And, and this is what will determine what kind of fruit we bear. Where do we abide? I was thinking about this all week, and I really think that in our society, just because we're so affluent in, in the U.S., we don't really have the problem of no fruit very much. We mostly have the problem of bad fruit. I think that's more our, our deal. Um, and, and for Jesus, the, the question of whether it's good fruit or bad fruit, again, is connected to where you abide day in and day out. From where are we drawing the source of our life? So, for instance, if you abide in 24-hour cable news, it's not that you will bear no fruit. You will bear the kind of fruit they're shaping you to bear, right? That they're nourishing in you. And this is 
not good fruit, man. This is like fear and blaming and resentment and anxiety and grievance. It's, it's bad fruit. If you abide in social media all day long, right? It's not that you'll bear no fruit. You'll just bear the fruit that is nourished in you by that medium. You, some of it will be good, like friendship and connection, just entertainment and, and fun. But also, you'll bear other fruits like comparison, jealousy, scarcity, insecurity, right? A, a, a cultivate or contrived sense of self or contrived sense of reality. Not to mention the dopamine loop that just gets us hooked on this stuff like heroin, right? For most of us, our problem um, will not be that we bear no fruit. It'll be that we, we end up bearing bad fruit that's not worthy of a child of God because we've plugged into, you know, another source. We're abiding in something else. I mean, you look widely at kind of Western capitalist societies these days, we're bearing some plainly terrible fruit. I always point to individualism, consumerism, and nationalism. They're kind of the unholy trinity that we can plug into. But there are other things, toxic masculinity, racism, economic injustice, social injustice, not to mention like the shameful exploitation of God's good creation. And those things um, are, are the fruit that grows out of the life of a people who are drawing their life from some other source besides God, besides Christ. I actually think COVID has been kind of um, revelatory in terms of exposing what the source of our life is. I mean, in, kind of here in the aftershocks of, of the pandemic, I'm encountering this in my own line of work it seems to indicate that most of us on some level dealt with the stress and trauma of COVID through consumption of some kind. Food, shopping, substances, entertainment, binge watching. I mean, does this sound familiar to anybody else besides me? I mean, we, we, this, is, this is also just what we've been trained to do in our culture. But now, kind of on the tail end of it, we're servicing some serious, like, strong appetites that have been built over the past year. We plugged into a source of life that was consuming and consumed those things as a way to just kind of make it through the day. And now we're coming out of this pandemic, and the source, that source of life is bearing fruit in the form of these appetites or, you know, a few more pounds or like some debt or whatever it is, whatever the fruit of that is. I mean, if you guys knew how many cups of coffee I've already drank just this morning, you would not want me to be your pastor, right? And now I'm not even getting into the cocoa pebbles habit that I developed. And that's not a joke, right? That is not a joke. Like, it's like I'm in third grade again. No offense to third graders. It's my problem. But we're going to have to kind of do something about the way we consumed our way through this this epidemic, and we're going to have to ask ourselves, why do we go to that source? Why is that what we plugged into? And what's the fruit that it's, it's producing? It's also disturbing to me the extent to which Christians in America plug into fear and outrage and culture wars as a source of energy and life and religious conviction. I mean, this is, we've been taught to do this for decades in the church. So we have these Wars, culture wars, spiritual wars, 
um, actual wars, these enemies we define who are out to get us and to get our children. And we do this, it's a way of kind of fomenting fear and giving us an enemy to blame and letting that function as the source of religious conviction and involvement. That's, I mean, that's rough. That the fruit that grows from lives that are plugged into that source are not the fruits of the Spirit. It's division, grievance, violence, nationalism, these political ideologies that put us against each other and this you know, fear and blaming and hating of enemies. I mean, I see no Christ in that. Jesus said, love your enemies. I mean, this wasn't, he wasn't equivocating here. Love your enemies. Love them. In the paragraph just before the vine and the branches here, he says really plain, this is right before the vine and branches. He says, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. And this practice of tapping into outrage and fear and culture wars as a source of energy and life and vitality for the church, this is bearing some terrible fruit. And all of the world can taste it and see it right now. In our society and societies around the world even. Everybody except those who are caught up in this mess. COVID has also, I think, had a pruning effect as well. You know, we had to slow things down for a while cut a lot of things out, activities and involvement. Many of us over that time, I've talked with a lot of you, and you're like me. We've, we've kind of it's exposed the fact that we're, we're too busy. We were overscheduled. And we got to kind of prune back some of that busyness from our lives. And this is really good. And now we're trying to figure out how to build it back. And, and my only caution here is that when we start pruning, um, often the church is the first thing to go. And I think that re- reveals something about the source of our life. You know, we need each other, you guys. Just in order to be human beings, we need each other. We need to see each other face to face. We need to um, worship together. We need to experience God together. We need to tell these stories that define us and pray these prayers and receive this, the bread and the cup. And, and somehow this has to remain when we come out after the pruning. This has to remain a priority for us. And, and very often, like work, family, um, leisure, kids, sports. I mean, there are a lot of other things that take the place of that, that remaining, that abiding in Christ that we do together as a church once a week. And so as we move back in, open back up, and start to restore some of those habits, um, the, the rhythms and habits and practices of our faith, they, they need to take priority for us. You know, Christianity has inherited these deeply subversive practices. There are like just a few of these that we talk about a lot at Redemption Church. There's weekly worship and daily prayer. Those are kind of the two central ones. We talk about um, the lungs of the body. The church is like the lungs of the kingdom. Every seven days, we're just breathed into these lungs. 
and we're fortified with all that we need to survive and we kind of offload some of the nastiness and the sin and brokenness and then we're just breathed out into the world to be the presence of God there. So it's once a week kind of for worship we're gathered and then we're breathed out and then out in the world the rest of the week. Every single day, man, we're supposed to be plugged into um, to the source of our life in, in some way or another. This is our habits of daily prayer. All of us need to establish some habit of daily prayer. Um, for me, it's just the, the Book of Common Prayer, which I'll talk about how you can um, find that stuff in a moment for, for morning prayers. A lot of us set our alarms. If you don't have your alarm set, set an alarm on your phone for 12 noon every day. And when it goes off, just take a beat. Just stop and say the Lord's Prayer and or read a chapter. And know there's, you know, at least, I don't know, a, a good portion of your church who stopped at the moment you did. And we're thinking about each other and we're praying at the same time. It's a way to stay connected, right? So that's weekly worship and daily prayer. You might need some kind of evening ritual. One of the things I do is usually before I leave the office, I just stop and do evening prayer. I'll even do a liturgy. Lately, I've just been sitting. I just sit in silence in the presence of God. I think about you guys. Think about my life. Just be still for a minute. But establish some kind of rhythm that happens every single day so you're remaining in the branches. The other two big ones are there's Sabbath and and tithing, these two kind of go together. Sabbath keeping is one day a week to say, we're not slaves, man. We, we just, for one day, we just delight in being the children of God. And then tithing does the kind of the similar thing with money. It just goes, I'm taking this chunk to say this other 90% doesn't define me. That's not where I draw my strength. And then the last one, the last practice for us is serving the marginalized. This being paired with the outcast. Christ said, you know, what you do to the least of these, you, you do to me. I'm there. I'm with them. You want to be with me, be with them. And so we take that to heart. And so these are kind of the three main rhythms of our life at Redemption Church. There's weekly worship and daily prayer. There's Sabbath keeping and tithing. And then there's just being with the marginalized, just serving them and, and sharing our lives. And as we're coming out of COVID and establishing new patterns, we need to prioritize these things. We have for you guys, for our, our church, um, a few resources that I want to recommend to you. Actually, two resources that I, I can just commend to you as, as a good, um, I don't know, interlocutor as you try to establish a new rhythm. The first is a video on our YouTube channel. It's called How to Establish a Daily Rhythm. We did this um, at the very beginning of the epidemic, but I think now as we're coming out of it and establishing a new rhythm, it would be good to go back and look at it. It's called How to Establish a Daily Rhythm. And um, I think it's actually on the front page if you go to um, Redemption Church KC on YouTube. And it will just kind of help you walk through how this works and how it fits with Christian discipleship in abiding in Christ, remaining in the vine. And the second one is a class that we, I taught here at Redemption Church a few years ago in our Redemption Church Institute. It's called A Guide to Christian Prayer. And that, all four of those sessions are on our podcast. If you just kind of search RCI for Redemption Church Institute or search Contemplative Prayer, or it's called A Guide to Christian Prayer, that, that will pop up. And it's just a four-part class, and it'll walk you through all of the different options, especially for daily prayer and establishing these rhythms of prayer. But really, I think, I mean, those are two resources. The best resource I can give you, though, um, comes direct from this passage. It's this image of the vine. 
and those of us who are grafted into it. And this reminder that, you know, the reason you're here, the purpose of your life is to bear good fruit. And you can do this just as a matter of course. You're, you're, you're designed for this. It's in your nature to do this if you'll abide in Christ, if you'll remain in Christ. And, and nothing could be more important than that. Let's pray. Just for a few moments here, just think about your own life. And how God wants us to have these deep down roots below the surface. He wants us to graft into this different source that produces unexpected fruit. And God plans to use all the adversity of our lives, and he's going to use all of it, the, the climate, the scriptures, the church, the soil, all of it to kind of slow things down for us. And God's going to prune us and tend us over long years, over decades. And then the natural kind of outpouring of our lives will, will be this good fruit that is for the life of the world. Oh God, we pray that this image of the vine and the branches would um, take root in our hearts and that it would inform the way we actually live our daily life. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, the, the true vine and our risen Savior. Amen. I invite you to stand now and we'll receive communion. And if you, when you came in, hopefully you received the element, elements for that. If you didn't, Beth is right there in the middle in the back and she can um, help you out. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and he passed it out to his guys and he, he said, this is my body broken for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup and passed this common cup around and they all drank from it. And he said, this is um, a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God that's established through my life, my blood. He said, every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, become me, become part of me, the body of Christ. And, and then be sent out to the, into the world. And so this is why we do it. We, just, we receive communion in obedience to that teaching. So I would invite you just to hold the elements in front of you, and we're going to pray a blessing on them. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen.